Today, let's find our place in Revelation chapter 3. We finally made it through chapter 2, and now we're looking at chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to preach as fast as I can. Now, I can't talk quite as fast as John does, but I will do my best. This is the sixth sermon in our series on the seven churches of Revelation. Last week we looked at the letter uh, to the church in Thyatira. Today we're traveling a little further south to the city of Sardis. Uh, Sardis, as you can see on the map behind me, is about 27 miles southeast of Thyatira. It's about 60 miles inland of Ephesus and Smyrna. It was a proud and wealthy city at one time. It was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia. The worshipped deity was Sybil. Sybil, whose form appeared on their coins. Sardis, as a matter of fact, was quite possibly the first ancient city to ever use minted currency. Uh, Sybil was represented as half-human and was often associated with a pair of lions. Uh, There was a large temple of Artemis in the city as well. Well, large is maybe an understatement. The temple would have dwarfed the Parthenon in ancient Greece. Uh, Some think that the local Asiatic goddess Sybil uh, identified with the Greek Artemis and that they too uh, were one and the same, but it's unclear if that was the case or not. Uh, There were two more notable structures in Sardis. The first was a large complex Uh, Built in the center of the lower city in about the 2nd century A.D., it housed a gymnasium and a bathhouse. Uh, The complex covered five acres of property. Uh, To give you some perspective uh, about that, uh, that would be more than 15 of our buildings. This was a massive complex. The second large structure uh, was a little unique in the fact that it was the synagogue of Sardis. Uh, the synagogue there in Sardis has been excavated, and it's among one of the largest ever excavated. But what makes it especially unique is the fact that it was found in the center of urban construct uh, in Sardis, instead of on the periphery, as was common for synagogues in Gentile cities. This must attest to the strength and wealth of the Jewish community in Sardis. The history of the church that Sardis represents is that of the Reformation from the years 1517 to about 1800. We haven't said a lot about that in this series, uh, but we will get back to that as we do a verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation as God leads us to do so. I want us to read this morning, beginning in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 3. And uh, if you'll listen fast, I'll, I'll preach fast, okay? Let's read beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, yet you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains, which was about to die. For I have found your deeds incomplete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard Keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour when I come upon you. But you do have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their garments, and because they are worthy, they will walk with me in white. Like them, he who overcomes will be dressed in white. 
And I will never blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love God's word. Amen. Father, thank you for the reading. I pray that you would bless it mightily in Jesus' name. Amen. We need to look at the letter introduction real quickly to the angel of the church in Sardis. Right here again. Uh, Jesus starts by giving us this brief yet profound description of himself. Uh, We're starting to get quite a picture of Jesus now, right? Because every letter starts out with a description of himself, a snippet, a snapshot of who Jesus is. He said of himself, I am the one who holds the seven stars in my right hand and and walks among the seven golden lampstands. He said he was the first and the last, that he had died and returned to life. He also said of himself, I'm the one who holds the sharp, double-edged sword. Then in Thyatira last week, we read that he said of himself very boldly, I am the Son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire and whose feet are like polished bronze. Now here in chapter or verse 1 of chapter 3, to the church at Sardis, he tells them that I am he who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, we're familiar with the seven stars. This has been a resounding theme since chapter 1 up till now. And the seven stars, of course, are the seven angels of the church, the pastors or overseers of the church. But Jesus also referenced the seven spirits of God in chapter 1 as well as he led John to introduce himself to the churches. So in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, John said, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and is to come, and from the seven spirits before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So he mentions the seven spirits of God. But what does he mean by that? What are we talking about? We don't usually hear that reference, that term in church. We, we hear of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? We don't hear the seven spirits of God very often. Well, Matthew Henry probably offers the most uh, probable commentary on the phrase. It's certainly the most beautiful you'll ever read. And here's what he says. He hath the seven spirits, that is, the Holy Ghost, with his various powers, graces, and operations. For he is personally one, though efficaciously various, and may be said here to be seven which is the number of the churches and of the angels of the churches, to show that to every minister and to every church there is a dispensation and measure of the Spirit given for them to profit withal, a stock of spiritual influence for that minister and church to improve, both for enlargement and continuance. (laughs) Now that's beautiful. (laughs) I love that. Uh, But to put it a little more simply... It likely means the Holy Spirit sent in all His fullness to the seven churches. What's significant about that phrase is the fact that Jesus is holding the seven spirits and the seven stars, which speaks uh, to the authority that has been given to Him by the Father. That's the introduction. It's always exciting when we're reading about Jesus and hearing about Him. What a great introduction. But let's look at the body of the letter. Notice, first of all, the sad fact about this congregation. He goes on to say in verse 1, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, yet you are dead. Here, once again, 
We have that familiar phrase, I know, I know, I know, just in case you have forgotten, Jesus knows, He knows, He knows your deeds, our good, our bad, the truth about us. He knows what no one else knows. And in the case of the church at Sardis, He knew their reputation, but He also knew that their reputation didn't really represent who they were. He said about them, you have a reputation for being alive, Yet I happen to know that you are dead. Jesus knows everything about us. You come into this place. Sometimes Christians will do this. They'll come into church and they're wearing a disguise. They're here in the guise of Jesus. But when they leave this building, they don't live their lives in a way that represents Him. And they come here thinking that they'll be okay if, 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 everybody, if everybody will just not ask too many questions. They can, you can skirt by and you'll do all right. But God knows. God knows everything about you. He says you have this reputation of being alive. The Greek verb translated alive is the word zao. And it means active or blessed. One definition, ironically, is this. To have true life and worthy of the name the Sardians had made a good name for themselves in the community. They were well known and probably well liked. But God knew their heart. And the church at Sardis was a cavern full of dead men's bones. And Jesus didn't make any bones about it. I know you. I know your deeds. I know that people think you're alive that you're doing well, but I know that you are dead. You're dead. That's the word necros. And it means a lifeless corpse. It can also mean, listen to this, destitute of power or force, inactive or inoperative. Sadly, that describes half or more of the churches in the world today. Inactive, inoperable. There's nothing going on. God forbid that that should ever be said of Christ First Church. There are two different kinds of dead churches. One is the obvious dead. We've all been to a church like this, more than likely. People drag in, sit down, there's no rejoicing. There's no change in format ever, no moving of the Spirit, shaking things up. At best, it's boring. At worst, it's blasphemy. The obvious dead. Then there's the oblivious dead. These are churches that don't know they're dead. They think they're alive. The church is often bustling with activity. They have back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back meetings. People are coming and going. They're working the programs. Man, they know everyone and they put it into action as soon as it comes out. But listen to me. Activity is not an accurate indicator of life. And yet people seem to think that that's the case. We have enough zombie lovers in this building, I know for a fact, that, that you know better than that, right? Did you know that it was Jesus, that He was the first one, and the Bible was the first thing to ever tell us about the living dead? In Luke chapter 9, verse 60, Jesus said, Allow the dead to bury their dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy 5, 6, Paul, writing to young Timothy, he said, But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. And there's churches 
in that category today. And that's what Jesus said about the church at Sardis. How sad. That's the sad fact concerning this congregation. They had a name that they lived, that they were alive. They no doubt had a lot going on, but Jesus said, you're dead. You're dead. You need to do something about it. So we see the sad fact about this congregation. Notice, secondly, the situation facing this congregation. Verse 2 and 3, he says, wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains, what is about to die, for I have found your deeds incomplete in the sight of God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour that I come upon you. Here the command to wake up is in the present imperative, which means to wake up and stay awake. In a lot of translations, it's keep watch. Watch continually. The thought here is to keep a vigil, to watch out for ourselves and for one another. And this is the same command that's been given to the Christians all throughout the New Testament. You need to wake up. You need to stay awake. We have a beautiful story in Scripture. sad, really, but it tells us exactly what Jesus meant, I believe. You remember Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane just before, just before his crucifixion. He was about to be arrested. He took three men with him, Peter, James, and John. They went to the inner part of the garden. And, and the Bible says this in Matthew 26, 38 through 41. Jesus said to them, those three men standing there, Peter, James, and John, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Or stay awake and pray, is what he's saying. And Jesus then went a little beyond them. He fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So, so you men could not keep watch with me? For an hour, for one hour, keep watching. Keep watching. Stay awake and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This church here at Sardis had fallen asleep and was in danger of death, and Jesus is sending them this word of warning. Wake up and strengthen what remains. This church undoubtedly started strong. They were founded on right principles, on correct doctrine, and there were those few good elements of faith and practice that remained, but even those things were falling into the dark night of death and decay. And Jesus says, wake up and strengthen what's about to die. Don't let the embers grow cold. Fan what's left in the hopes of rekindling the fire. What struck me about this is the shift of responsibility. Jesus tells the church to wake up. He's telling them to strengthen what remains. It's amazing to me how we try to make everything out to be God's fault. 
and we cry out quick to Him. And I'm not saying necessarily this is a wrong prayer, but we pray, Lord, send revival, do this, do that, as if it's God's fault that we're in the mess that we're in, that He's no longer concerned. But God knows our heart. He knows the truth about us. So God can easily turn the conversation and, and, and He tells us, you strengthen what remains. Listen, if there's any space between you and God, that's on you. God never left you. God never left a church. He never turned His back on even one Christian. If you're not experiencing the relationship you used to have with God, then that's your fault. When I find myself distanced from God, I realize, man, this is on me. I've got to find a place to get on my knees and on my face and cry out to God. I'm in trouble here. And so, so Jesus tells them to wake up, strengthen what remains, which is about to die. I have found your deeds incomplete in the sight of God. It's our responsibility. I know that only God can send revival. I was 16 years full-time in evangelism myself. I know that that is truth. But there is a condition that we all must meet to know the full expression of the Spirit of God in our lives. James 4, verses 7 through 10 says, Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Have you ever heard anyone say something like this? It just seems that God is so far away. I've said that in the past. Who, whose fault do you think that is? God who loves you unconditionally, a God who has demonstrated, who has proven His love for you in the fact that He has sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. Do you think it's God who just all of a sudden, after sacrificing His Son, has decided He no longer wants anything to do with you? You cost Him the very best He had. God will never turn His back on you. If you find yourself in a situation where God seems way off, then the Word of God says, draw near to God. You take the initiative. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. It's a, it's a problem in the modern church that we want to come into, a, into the church and we want to rejoice. And that's all we want to do. We, we want the church to be a place to lift us up. So we want to come and, and, and express ourselves in a way uh, that we know the joy. And listen, there is joy in knowing the Lord. Don't you take me wrong. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. There's joy in knowing the Lord, but, but in the church, if we come and people weep and cry, sometimes we think we did it wrong because we're supposed to have the Spirit high moving in the church. 
And I love it when the Spirit of God moves in a high way, in a big way. I love that. It's my personality as well. So I like that. I enjoy that. I'm, I'm like Elijah. I love the big display. But before we can ever get to a place of high rejoicing, there has to be a place of humility and brokenness where we find ourselves on our face before God confessing our sins. We can't come in here and just expect God to overlook everything that we've done this past week and bless us. We get on our face before God and commit our sins to Him and say, Lord, I have failed you. I have come short of the glory that you have set as a standard for my life and I have brought shame to your name and I'm sorry. I want to rejoice in you. I, I want to shout your name. But I can't do that until I'm right with you. Jeremiah 29, 12, 13, and 14 says, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Notice, notice the responsibility here. God doesn't have to hunt us. He knows where we are. But a lot of us, if we desired to draw near to God, would have to go hunting Him because it's been a long time since we spent time with Him. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will, I will be found by you, says the Lord. That's His part. He makes Himself known. <laughs> I love that. And I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. And of course, we know that the prophet here is speaking to the children of Israel. But this is representative of the heart of God for all people. God desires a relationship with you. He wants you to know Him, to experience Him. Wake up and strengthen what remains, what's about to die. I have found your deeds incomplete in my sight. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Now here's the situation that the church is facing. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know the hour when I will come upon you. Coming as a thief in Scripture usually denotes judgment. Unexpected judgment. Here Jesus is giving the choice. This little word, if, is the word of condition. If you do not wake up, I will come as a thief. But the other side of the coin is if you do wake up, I will send revival. I will send my spirit. I will bless you. It's a word of condition. We have it in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, the verse that we know and love so well. If, if, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. But if we don't, the opposite is also true. That's the situation that's facing us. It's the situation that's facing our community and our nation. 
Listen, our nation is in a bad place and we need an extraordinary move, an extraordinary move of the Spirit of God. We need revival and we need an awakening. Revival comes to the church. God's people gets revived and then God is able to cause an awakening in the world. And we need, we need this in our nation so badly. Wes came up here and prayed a, a few minutes ago and Wes is one of the teenagers in our youth group. And he and I have had several conversations. He has a heart for God. He feels called to ministry. He and I have been talking about that. And when I, when I knelt here, I, he, was, he was weeping. And, and the only thing I could pray for is, Lord, give him a heart for his generation. And, and give his generation hearts that he has. God still wants to send revival. He, he, he is not withholding His blessings intentionally. That's not God. He's a good, good Father we sing about. And He, he desires to give good gifts to His children. Here's, here's the question for you today. Are you willing to meet the conditions for revival? If it meant seeing your family saved, what would you do? What to what extent would you go in order to see revival in your own life? What things would you lay down? What would you forsake? What would you, what would you recommit to? What are you willing to do in order to see your family come to know Christ? Your friends come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Are you willing to meet the conditions for revival? John asked, are you in? Are you in? Are you in? Are you willing? The sad fact about this congregation, the situation facing this congregation, and then lastly, the Savior's faithful few within this congregation. And I'm going to hurry as best I can. Verse 4 says, But you do have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their garments. Because they are worthy, they will walk with me in white. You have a few people who have not sold their garments. That's the hope. That there's a few people still left that know how to pray, that can disciple others, that know how to reach the heart of God. God will stay His judgment for a remnant, for just a few. Because God is not trying to, to send judgment. He's trying to send revival. He wants to send good blessings to his children. In Genesis chapter 18, we have the beautiful story of God's willingness and desire to show mercy to mankind. If you know that chapter, it's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The sin of these cities had come up to God and the sin was so great that God sent three angels to destroy it. You may say, well, how in the world is that a beautiful story of a heart of God and desire of God to spare. Because when Abraham found out what was about to happen, he goes to God in prayer. And Abraham says to God, Would you spare these cities if you can if there were fifty? He starts out, if there were fifty righteous people. Fifty out of Two cities. If, if, if we can find 50 righteous people, would you spare 
the cities or would you still destroy them? And God in His kindness and His grace said, I would spare them. But almost immediately, Abraham, not certain that he could find 50 righteous people in the two cities, said, would you do it for 45? Do you know this story? And God agreed, I would. And then Abraham must be thinking, I don't know that I've ever known 45 people in that place that love the Lord. He said, would you spare them for 40? And God agreed. And then Abraham had the audacity to drop it to 30. And he said, Lord, please forgive me, but would you do it for 30? And God said, yes. And I don't know how Abraham had the courage. But he came back and said, would you spare the cities for 20? And God agreed again. And then Abraham once more said, for 10 people. If we could find 10 righteous people out of these two cities, would you spare them? And God said, I will. But sadly, 10 couldn't be found. Only Lot and his family was counted as worthy so that fire fell from heaven and consumed the city. But here in Sardis, there was a faithful few. They had kept themselves pure. They had avoided the corruption that permeated the culture of their day. No stain of immorality or idolatry sold their lives. And unlike the slumbering fellow Christians that God was speaking to, this faithful few had kept a watchful eye. They had stayed awake being cautious of anything and anyone that might cause them to stumble or fall into sin. And because of their faithfulness, Jesus promised they will walk with me in white. That phrase in white is, is a glorious thought. It's in contrast to the filthy rags of our own righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that all our self-righteousness, our own righteous acts is as filthy rags before God which means there's no chance that we can save ourselves. We are morally bankrupt and eternally lost and without hope if we're depending on ourselves to get into heaven. But on the cross, Jesus took our sin upon himself and purchased our salvation. We have been justified, Scripture says, by his blood. And part of that act of justification is an imputation of his own righteousness given to us. I love that. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, Jesus is righteous by virtue of His nature. He is the Son of God. And by God's grace and through faith in Jesus Christ, that righteousness is given to all who believe. We have these incredible verses in Romans chapter 3. If you don't listen to anything else I've said today, or if you don't remember anything else, you need to hear this. Romans 3 verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that Christ, that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. Wow. The question is today, do you believe? Do you believe? Verse 5 says, like them, he who overcomes will also be dressed in white. And I will never, ever, ever blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and the angels. Here we have the phrase once again, he who overcomes and just in case you have forgotten. 1 John 5, 4 and 5 says, For everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? For those of us who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, our sins have been forgiven Our sinful past has been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. And our names have been written down in the book of life never to be removed. Do you believe? We have the exhortation at the end of the letter, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The question is, are you listening? Are you listening? 